0: Hello, my name is Matthew Kidman, and welcome to the latest episode of Success and More Interesting Stuff. After a fabulous response to season three over the summer, we have decided to make Success and More Interesting Stuff a regular feature for 2023, coming to you every four to six weeks. I hope you enjoy it. We have a treat for you today. Historically, the show has concentrated on outstanding investors and leading executives. Today, we are delving into the other cog with the share market machine fourth estate, or as most of us know it, the media. Tony Boyd has been a finance journalist for more than 40 years. The latest 13, he has been writing the preeminent financial column in Australia, Chanticleer. Affectionately known as the Chook, the Chanticleer column has held pride of place on the back page of the Australian Financial Review since 1974. The Chook columnists include luminaries such as Robert Gottliebson, Ivor Rees and Alan Kohler. No one, though, has lasted as long as Boyd. Writing Chanticleer is a monumental task. 1,200 words on the issues of the day, every day. It might sound simple enough, but to be cutting edge and relevant all the time takes an extraordinary person. Not only do you need to understand the full spectrum of company issues, but you must talk to the key people involved. Conversations with the top echelon of corporate Australia is only reserved for the respected few. Boyd started out as a copy boy of Rupert Murdoch's newsletter. From there, he enjoyed stints in Europe and Japan and edited sections on banking and IT. A short secondment to investor relations saw him return to the fourth estate to write Chanticleer in 2010. At the end of March this year, Boyd put down his pen for the last time. Welcome Tony, and congratulations on your career and claiming the title as the longest serving chook
1: Thanks, Matt. Yes, it's uh, it's. I, I, I'm overwhelmed by the amount of tributes I've had in the last uh, little while. But um, yeah, good good to have a break, and and maybe you might actually see my name come back uh, as a contributor to the Financial Review.
0: I knew you couldn't let it go. It, what happened on Monday morning? Did you get up, sit down at the uh, computer, tap out 500 words and, and say, well, what am I doing? <laughs> After <laughs> years, 13 years of doing uh, it.
1: Look, I, I had a very close read of the newspapers and online and, um, yeah, my mind is still working in that uh, way that that you have to, as, as, as Clear, but... Uh, no, the, uh, by 8.30 I was uh, floating in the Pacific Ocean uh, trying to catch some waves, so it was, a nice, it was a nice morning.
0: Sounds like you gather yourself pretty quickly. Well, it's interesting that you've lasted that long, not just the 13 years, but 40 odd years, because it's a, it's a pretty brutal cycle every day, news every day, you've got to get up, you've got to make the phone calls, um, and as, as a... As a journalist, most people would think you're quite unpleasant or a churlish type of character that's got to make these horrible calls and ask terrible questions. But I've always thought you are quite a pleasant, nice-going person. Do you think that's helped? Yeah, look, I've always uh, uh, picked up the
1: phone when, when people wanted to uh, pitch a story to me or um, I've tried to be, uh, you know, sort of fair uh, in, in in my coverage. Uh, sometimes you might say tough but fair. But, um, yeah, look, it's... Uh, a, a I got a great piece of advice from a, a journalist, that uh, a great Australian journalist, Murray Sale, who said that uh, your best contacts are the ones you can go back to. So uh, it's um, if, if you're going to keep burning people,
0: uh, you, your contact book will, will start to get smaller and smaller. Well, there's great judgment in that, mm. isn't there? There's there's a fine line between what people will tell you and what you can write, and to make sure you keep those contacts over time because that's your lifeblood, isn't it?
1: That's right, because the Chanticleer column uh, doesn't, tends, tends not to quote people. It, it does when you've got a big interview that you think is uh, very significant. But uh, generally, day to day, it's uh, expressed as fact. And um, people have to take, take you on your word and trust that, that you've, you've got the information and uh, that it's true.
0: Well, you don't look tired. 40 years in the job, 13 years with Chanticleer, longest ever, as we said in the intro, exhausting
1: uh look some days it it was it was quite demanding especially when uh towards the latter part of the afternoon there you're sort of four o'clock um and and whatever you had just fell over for some reason and you have to go and find something it can be quite uh, quite stressful and uh, because you have to file by 6 30 at night and um it's 1,250 words, so it's okay, actually, okay. It's, I, actually uh, it. <laughs> it's, its you know, that, that last couple of hundred words can sometimes be quite tough.
0: And, and if the story falls over that you've been counting on all day, it, it, that's particularly tough.
1: It is, yes. So you've got to have a few uh, ideas in your back pocket and, and people that you can go to uh, who, who might be able to help you. Who who've Usually they're people who've got an opinion on everything and, and you can usually find a good idea. Uh, through a quick chat
0: in the afternoon. (laughs) I won't say any names, but... uh... There's go-to people. (laughs) Yes, that's right. Oh, very good. Well, you went out with a bit of a bang. You you gave the, well, what we all trade on, the ASX, the company itself a bit of a cert, rightly so, I think. But uh, but writing those hard columns saying there has to be change at the ASX, that's the kind of message you've got to get out there. That doesn't always win your friends.
1: No, that's right. Uh, I I thought that was an important issue to take a stand on, that... um, the, the, the plumbing of the financial markets, when, when you mishandle it and um, don't deliver on what you promise, then uh, someone's got to be held accountable. And as far as I can see, uh, really nobody has been held accountable at the ASX for, uh, for that debacle, which cost shareholders $250 million, which was the attempt to replace the clearing and settlement system with some, something more cutting-edge and, and modern. and uh, But uh, we're stuck with the old system Because it works, I suppose.
0: Yeah, and compliance, they're supposed to be at the vanguard of compliance. They're supposed to be telling us how to comply with trading and and announcements and continuous disclosure, and we didn't seem to get it. So, very interesting story, and and not a bad way to go out on the actual ASX itself.
1: (laughs) Yes, well, look, I mean, I wasn't trying to uh, have an axe to grind with the ASX. I just thought, yeah, there were some important principles there, and I was, uh, you know, impressed that uh, the Australian Securities Investment Commission are willing to investigate what went on there and uh, whether there were, uh, you know, they've said there's suspected breaches of many different parts of, of the corporation's law. So
0: let's see what they come up with. The institutions might still be working in our favour. Let's see. Well, let's let's go back. As a kid growing up in the eastern suburb of Sydney, went to Waverley College um, when you were a kid. What, what, inv- what kind of environment was that like? Uh, different to today in the ni- 1970s, late 60s, 70s? Yeah, look, uh, I,
1: I know Waverley is uh, is is a, a respected uh, school mm. in the eastern suburbs today. So, I mean, I don't think that's changed. Uh, the uh, it, it was a great place to go to school because uh, it had a very good um, sporting program, uh, some great teachers. You know, I had I had some wonderful teachers there. Uh, uh, Mainly the two best were the, were the English teachers, uh, Peter Moore, Peter Frost. Right. You know, um, and uh, that, that really gave me a, a long-lasting, you know, love of English and writing. But, um, you yeah, know, good school. Um, it, had, it had a great uh, sporting program and, uh, yeah, I could, uh, you know, actually walk home from, from <laughs> there, uh, you know, if I missed the bus or whatever.
0: Very good. And to be a, ju- a good journalist, I think, over time, you have to be reasonably competitive. You've got to chase that story. You've got to want to make it yours. You've got to do a good job. Did that come through at school? Were you a competitive individual? You talked about you mentioned sport there a couple of times.
1: Yeah, no, I, I was uh, competitive in uh, in cricket until uh, yeah the uh, the talent around me was just so good. I gave that away. I, I tried to be pretty competitive in tennis, um, uh, and then uh, I, I sort of gained a love of surfing and started to do that instead. Um, but uh, yeah, no, I'd, I'd, say, I'd say I'd be a pretty competitive person if, if I'm involved in a, in a game or, or chasing a story for sure and that's, that's something I learned as a, as a cadet journalist was to, uh, you know, make sure you beat the opposition. <laughs>
0: yeah, it always hangs <laughs> over you, doesn't it? Well, just that surfing, you surf till today, don't you? You've kept it alive for all this time. Have yes. You, have you improved at all? <laughs> <laughs> Talking about being competitive. <laughs> oh,
1: look, Matt, I, I nosedived yesterday, fell off the front of the board, and I was lucky I had my uh, right arm up there because it was coming straight from a face. The and, board? Yes, and he just sort of – I've got a bit of a bruise here on my arm now, but uh, it's uh, it's fun but can can be dangerous. But uh, I caught uh, a couple of good waves that you know, kept kept me sort of going all day, actually. It's great fun. Just that adrenaline rush of catching a wave is uh, – there's nothing like it.
0: Well, you better be careful in retirement. It's a dangerous world out there. E- easier to <laughs> sit at your desk in the Fairfax bunker, I would have thought, rather than nearly breaking arms or breaking noses. Um, so that that was a great environment. You obviously had some good mentors as far as teachers go. Um, got you interested in writing, reading, English in general. Well, but if we take it back to home, I think your dad was a lawyer?
1: Yeah, dad was a solicitor, yeah, and uh, he... Um Well, he took the opportunity, he had a bit of a spirit of adventure, decided to go to uh, a a town in western New South Wales, Wellington, to uh, pick up a a practice that had gone bust. I think the the resident solicitor had, uh, um, I think he might have stolen some money from the trust fund. So uh, dad took over there and uh, lived there for 10 years. So I, I sort of was there till I was about age five or six and then we moved back to Sydney.
0: Very good. And you never thought of following in his footsteps? Uh, no, look, Bates I... Uh, the light d- didn't interest you that much? <laughs> <laughs> Not
1: really. Well, one of the barriers to uh, that was my uh, low marks uh, in the HSC. I, I didn't get enough marks to become a lawyer. I had two brothers who were lawyers, my sister's a lawyer, uh, but um, I didn't quite make the grade, so, uh, yeah, didn't do that.
0: Or oh, gave you different options. Exactly, You don't yeah. do it too well, it narrows your options over time.
1: That's right. I mean, I'll never forget going to the career advisor at Waverley and he said, uh, well, you know, with your skills and talent, uh, you could probably get a scholarship as a teacher. So uh, I, I put that down uh, on my university application and lo and behold, I got that uh, and, and was, was looking ahead to life as a teacher. But um, I had an uncle, who uh, Dr Bill Moore, who was a statistician. He'd, he'd got his PhD at Harvard and uh, my dad uh, arranged a meeting with him and he said, look, the demographics don't look good. You, you, don't, you don't want to be in teaching. Uh, you'll be graduating into a, into a, a world where uh, it won't be such a great career. So uh, lo and behold, next thing you know, I was doing business studies at uh, UTS, which uh, at that time was the New, New South Wales Institute of Technology. Mm-hmm. But uh, I dropped out of that and managed to get a job as a copy boy at
0: uh, News Limited. And what was... The, the news and finance in general talked about at home or was it just something that you got interested in yourself?
1: Uh, well that was a, a, a certainly at home we were a newspaper family so uh, I used to wait in the morning after dad had gone to work he'd read the Herald and then I'd, I'd grab it and start to read it. It was very much a part of my growing up around the table the person with the newspaper and um, that you had I just felt it was part of life to be informed. But um, when it came to um, actually, uh, you know, getting a job, um, I wasn't necessarily attracted directly to finance, but that that came later.
0: And were you the kind of person who read the front of the paper or the second half where you had sport and, and Oh, business? yeah,
1: look, start at the front page and then go to the sports section. Yeah, no, it was... Um, Uh, you know, I used to follow the Eastern Suburbs uh, team, rugby league team and rugby union because I played rugby at at Waverley. So, uh, yeah, they're two sports I've kept interested in over my life.
0: But business at that stage was a bit of a mystery.
1: Yeah, look, I didn't really, uh, to be honest with you, I was held up in my uh, cadetship at News Limited uh, because I didn't have my shorthand speed and the only way I could sort of trade my way out of that Uh, because they were going to keep me on this uh, very low wage for as long as they possibly could, was to switch from being a general reporter. They sent me to Melbourne, the Daily Tele, and I switched to becoming a finance reporter at The Australian. And the deal was that I would go from a uh, a fourth-year cadet to being a graded journalist. So in some ways, uh, it was like a finance... Came out of a negotiation
0: to uh, advance my career. So you never actually got your, your numbers on your on your shorthand. <laughs> no, it was it wasn't uh, too bad, and I still oh, you can disclose it here. You been, used, you've been hiding it all these years. I still
1: use it, but I never got to 120 words a minute.
0: Very good. I, I remember I was lucky because I, I I also worked for the Murdoch Group, and but i my first job was at Campbelltown, so I used to go from the city every day to Campbelltown and back, and on the way out in the morning I'd do my shorthand, and I'm. I finished first in the class because no one else had done it. After seven months, I had my shorthand because I did it for an hour and a half every day.
1: Fantastic. So and maybe you, you should
0: have been on that train. <laughs> do you still use it today? Or? I accidentally write with shorthand. But I did an unusual one called Greg. And, oh, Greg. Okay. Yeah, there was other methods. As, as opposed to Pittman's, yeah. Pittman's, that was it. That was the main one. But um, that, that was annoying and, and you had to get it. So just, just, just for the listeners, a copy boy is what in a newspaper? Well... that's uh, where you started before you even got a cadetship.
1: Yes. Uh, the News Limited at that time uh, in, in 1978, you know, as, as had been doing this for many years. They had an annual examination and you went in and did a, uh, uh, an exam that uh, had uh, multiple choice questions like who's the treasurer, who's the Premier of Victoria, uh, and then you had to write an essay. And... Um, That then, if you got through, opened your way to a copy boy, which is a a sort of a gopher. Now, I'm pretty sure I got... Around the news floors. Yeah, so you're just doing... uh, You're moving copy from the sub-editors to the uh, shoot, which takes the copy down to the stone downstairs where they put the paper, uh, which was uh, made... Each page was made in hot metal. It was a very different, uh, you know, and sort of ancient and long-standing printing process that was used um so this was at
0: holt street in surrey hills
1: yes it was so uh but i was willing to do anything to keep you know make make the journalist happy so i was uh as i as i continued in that job i would put money in parking meters uh i would go and put bets on at the tab (laughs) uh i had uh you know i i drove home a a, an editor who couldn't drive his car because he'd been at the pub um there were there were many different things that you did to uh Life sure you know, skills is a couple of Yes, works, right? <laughs> that you learned. But uh, no, it was, it was a very uh, good uh, time in, in learning a lot because uh, you understood exactly how the newspaper worked and the priorities that had to be given. Uh, I'll never forget when uh, John, Pope John Paul II died and I picked that up out of the, uh, the telex room Uh, First, before any other copy boy on the floor. And it was very competitive in those days to get the photographs for a big story. So I went straight round to the uh, photographic uh, department and got all the photos of of Pope John Paul II, who had just died, took them round to to the Daily Telly so that the Australian uh, newspaper couldn't get them. And uh, we we sort of uh, beat them on that, which was a very uh, significant thing for (laughs) the back page uh, sort of guy doing the layouts there.
0: And it would have been quite a tough environment. The journalists would have been quite rough and ready, quite aggressive, I would have thought. Uh,
1: Yeah, look, uh, we used to sit next to the Daily Mirror. Now, that was... uh, I mean, I'm good friends with Peter Ryan. He was a copy boy there, and got a cadetship. He's uh, the ABC business correspondent, and and peter will tell you some wonderful stories about the characters that were at the Daily Mirror, um, and uh, you know that 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 got sometimes got a bit ugly. The shouting and the things thrown around the room, but uh, the paper came out every day, and
0: <laughs> <laughs> the readers not any the wiser. Yeah. And from that point onwards, did you have ink in your veins? Did, did it win you over? Did you think, this is where I'm going to be for the next, oh, definitely. Like, all of my working career?
1: Yes. Well, uh, when I got the cadetship, uh, it was another confirmation that, you know, hard work d- does get rewarded Because uh, cadetships were hard to come by. They were uh, difficult. Um, they were only handed out every so often. I, I was a copy boy for 14 months and... Um, uh, as, as the time led up to it, um, y- y- you sort of had this sense of expectation. And uh, my coll- a couple of my colleagues had, had been told they had them. And I remember being called into the editor's office. Owen Thompson was the editor of the telly at the time. And uh, he, he called me in and, I, and he said, right, you got a cadetship. And I just sort of nodded, <laughs> said thanks. And then he said, is that all you're effing going to say? You've got a cadetship, and so I had to uh, really uh, show, you know, sort of show my <laughs> appreciation. But um, well, it didn't help the way he delivered it.
0: Yeah, look, you, he was he a fairly much yeah. excitement on the other side of the desk.
1: Yeah, he was a bit laconic, a bit sort of, uh, uh, but uh, very good editor.
0: Yeah. And, and do you remember, as a copy boy before you became a cadet, what what your pay was?
1: Uh, yeah well because I did shift work it was it was better than the what it would have been because I was working you know off until uh midnight but uh I think it was about uh 40 uh, about 40,000 yeah.
0: oh wow that's pretty good it well, actually
1: argument. mate no wait on it must have been less than that because that's what I was paid uh I was paid 45 when I went to the financial review in 1988 so yeah it must
0: have been well, a lot I, less than that yeah I remember when I got my cadetship I, I was on 18,000 but I was on a suburban newspaper, so maybe okay. that shift work okay. was, was yeah. the place to be. I Didn't keep my first pay slip, but yeah, look, it was probably <laughs> probably less than thirty, right? And in that, so you you got that cadetship that was on the Daily Telegraph, and there, But then you made the move to the Australian and the business section. How did that unfold? Because that, well, that uh, was your big move into business, I gather. That's right. Well, the telly we had a great training program. I did police
1: rounds. Um, I did every possible court. I did the petty sessions, the uh, Federal Court of Petty Sessions. I did the coroner's court. I mean, I uh, actually did the Federal uh, Court commercial list. Um, that was fantastic training. Um, I did uh, feature writing and then towards the end uh, I, I did you know several months on the sub-editor's desk and then they sent me to Melbourne as a Melbourne correspondent. But, of course, being the Sydney Daily Telegraph, nobody wanted to know anything about Victoria <laughs> or Melbourne. I think I got uh two uh stories that were of any note and that was a, a, a strike at carlton united breweries mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other one was uh the blf being uh uh convicted or, or yes of uh, corruption the, the which or, was a the the big b- story of the day I yeah remember. the big builders labors federation that was a front page story yeah. and um, you wrote that yes i wrote that from melbourne but uh as i said earlier the um Getting getting off that uh, cadetship onto a graded journalism because the lack of shorthand was a problem, and then lo and behold, the uh, Australian did a massive uh, job cuts. It was a, it was a periodic thing they used to do, and uh, they were looking for some
0: junior reporters in the finance section, and I joined. Oh, very good. And and what did you think of that? Because that wasn't finance or business. My recollection is it wasn't a much sought after job among the general journalists. Uh, no, Canberra it, or politics or it, it the not really or police, but business? No, you're right. It, it, was, a, it was a
1: lower sort of grade uh, in terms of the, the, the pantheon of all the jobs you could have in a newspaper. But uh, there were some very good people in that section in Melbourne. Uh, now, the editor was Don Kirkwood, who was a very experienced guy and had fantastic knowledge of the resources industry. And the other person there who was writing the markets column was Anton Whitehead. Right. And uh, you may know Anton went on yes. to, a, to a very good career in the stockbroking industry. And um, he, was, he was a master in the way he was breaking stories every day through being on the phone to brokers. And uh, that I, I learned a lot from just watching him work because he, he, I suppose you'd call him the, uh, the street talk of today, right. except he did that every day through
0: writing the equities market column. So uh, good training ground. He he was very similar as a broker, relentless. Always on the phone, always looking for the next deal.
1: Yes, no, phenomenal. Um there was of course that slight black mark with the uh IPO of the AMP when uh <laughs> yes, yeah, somebody pressed the wrong button and they uh, they pushed the stock up to what was it, twenty two I think it might have briefly been thirty dollars even. Yeah, there was there was something happened there. But look, Anton came through that with his reputation uh uh well i mean i don't think everyone blamed him but, no. but he, he and he was a he's still a great broker
0: yeah yeah that's right and i've, I've dealt with him up until recently so th- then you were there you were getting your training ground little did we know that if you wanted to be in journalism maybe business was the place in the 80s the way it evolved we had the 87 stock market crash and we had all the entrepreneurs that became household names probably for the first time in australian history the business people were on the front of the paper rather than in their own little section so it would have been a great time. But I think at the time you um, took a job and went overseas. Yeah, well... Um, and was that a good thing given what was happening in Australia? <coughs> what, what, it was London?
1: Yeah, definitely. No, uh, well, I started in the Melbourne office of the Australian in, in finance in, in about March 83 and then uh, uh, went back to Sydney in 84 and then um, did, a, did a pretty good job there in the sense that uh, my editor, Alan Farrelly, uh, thought I was, uh, uh, you know someone who could be relied on to, to go and uh, take a job, they had the European Finance Correspondents job which was, was in the London office of News Limited and... Uh, that must have been incredible because you were still very young. Yeah, 1985, yeah, fantastic to be sent over there and uh, uh, the, uh, you know, it's today it's very rare, The um, we, we do have foreign correspondents, well at nine, entertainment, um, but there's fewer now than there were before because of the, the costs involved and... So they sent me to London, and um, yeah, fantastic time to be there when all the, the buccaneers and uh, uh, sort of entrepreneurs of business who who all got uh, a bit sort of
0: overtaken by their own leverage, and uh, they definitely leveraged themselves up. Yeah. And did you get many of the Aussies coming through, the Alan Bonds of the world, coming through the John Elliots? Cause, yeah, cause They definitely. relied a lot on on London and support from the financial markets in there. Leveraging up into their business empire.
1: They did, yes. Uh, I remember interviewing Alan Bond on the phone one day after he did a deal, which uh, I think it was a, um, an entertainment business that he sold within three weeks at a $200 million profit. I mean, <laughs> absolutely amazing. John Elliott was there regularly because he'd uh, made a bid for Allied Lines. That's right. Which uh, failed dismally uh, because basically I think the British establishment just closed ranks. And the competition commission there stopped it from happening, and um, but yeah, he was he was a he was
0: a. Did you get to talk to him? Yeah, quite a got, lot. You got the pig's um, ass and all that. We'd kind. Uh, <laughs> you know he'd
1: have regular updates with the journalists at uh, the, the British newspapers, and I would turn up to those. And uh, uh, he once gave me a lift in his in his car. Uh, uh, through the streets of London, just just uh, after one of those functions, but yeah, um, he was uh, yeah really uh, up against it in the UK. But they loved him in the sense that you know he would he would fill the newspapers, the business sections, with his uh, attacks on you know the uh, sort of sclerotic uh, British business processes and, <laughs> and and the way they uh, wanted to protect the
0: status quo. And what was – you mentioned you talked to Alan Bond, you interviewed him over the phone. What was Bondy like? Because by this stage he'd won the America's Cup and he was a household name in Australia. Yeah, look, he, he was uh, to deal with, you know, quite an ebullient
1: person and, and overflowing with, uh, you know, goodwill and that sort of thing. But uh, I never really sort of was, was involved in, in uh, criticising him uh, for, for what had happened. That, that happened, that came later. Uh, you may know that it was, uh, you know, a British company, Tiny Rowland, mm-hmm. company called Lonro that that published the big thesis on why Bondcorp was a house of cards, and I think that contributed to his demise eventually because uh, the, the whole uh, thing people realised couldn't couldn't be held together
0: with just the cash flows out of the businesses. That's right. Yeah, that was the beginning of the end. It was it was a long end, but it was the beginning. So that was a good time working in a bureau offshore feeding back information back into Australia, that fair degree of independence. You're kind of working in a small bureau. And yeah. you have to, you have yeah, to be reliant on your own skills to cover everything.
1: You are. Um, there's a lot of uh, uh, sort of things you learn from your colleagues over there. Uh, um, I, I should, I suppose, say that, that a lot of your sources are coming from the local newspapers, so you have to pick up. What they've reported, and go and try and talk to the same people, and, and get the uh, get the stories from them. Uh, the time zone made it very difficult. Um, the Australian wanted uh, uh, to have a comprehensive coverage of the Saturday newspapers, so every Saturday night I would go into the office to get the the Sunday Times, the Observer, the Sunday Telegraph. Uh, all of the big uh, newspapers that have come out in the UK that are full of uh, a fantastic investigative journalism other and then try and uh, get get an angle out of that now a lot of it because you you're stuck at the office in the middle of the night you you're actually rewriting uh, you know with appropriate acknowledgement uh, the stories that have been broken by the journalists in uh, in that part of the world but uh, yeah the the um,
0: Things have definitely changed. We, we, we get it live
1: to the mix now. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, But, uh, no, it can it can be hard on your family because my wife, Claire, was there with me and, you know, it was to, to be away at the office a lot. Every, every Saturday night. Not good for your marriage. No, no. But we
0: survived <laughs> that. Still going. Very good. Very good. And it would be remiss of me to not ask, did you ever meet the Sun King at the time over there, Rupert Mur- Murdoch himself? Because he would have been located in London at that stage, I imagine.
1: Yes. No, I never met him. Uh, the uh, Bureau Chief, Murray Hedgeco, who was in our office, uh, used to write a letter to him uh, uh, that went uh, – it was sort of like a, a description of what had happened in the, in the, in the British sort of economy and newspapers and, and Murdoch was an avid reader of that. Now, I didn't get to interview Rupert Murdoch till I was working in Japan – uh, in 96, 97, 98 and there was a, he came to Japan and there was a very big reception held for him uh, in, in one of those big hotels in Tokyo. And the only way that myself and other journalists were able to meet him was that the Japanese had a tradition that uh, you would go to get the Meiji card, which is your business card, and you would, you would hand it over and the person would give you one as well. <laughs> back so we got in the queue behind all the Japanese businessmen and of course uh, Rupert Murdoch suddenly had four or five journalists ready to hand over their card to him and uh, he then agreed to do a, a sort of what you call a door stop right. uh, and um, it, it went quite well. He, he, we asked him about politics and he commented on the Australian political situation which in itself was headline news so, so that was good.
0: It was interesting in the sense that you had Kerry Packer at home. Rupert taking over the world and Kerry had that rambunctious, aggressive kind of approach to everyone. While Rupert was very softly spoken, kind of a gentle individual, but that didn't show up. That's my impression. Yes. didn't show up in the way he did business. It was was almost (coughs) the opposite where he was on the front foot all the time.
1: Well, I have one anecdote about Kerry Packer. When I was working in London, um, I found out he was staying at the Savoy Hotel. I'm not sure what he was in London for, but um, the... uh, uh, Switchboard at the Savoy put me through and I wasn't quite sure what I was going to sort of ask him about But I thought I might as well take the opportunity to try and talk to Kerry Packer while he's in London The switchboard put me through He answered the phone I said "Uh, uh, It's Tony Boyd, uh, you know, the Australian newspaper Uh, Mr Packer, can I, uh, before I could finish, he said Well, F off And uh, hung up It was a very short interview But um,
0: uh, at least he did pick up the phone. Well, the good thing is it stayed with you for a long time. <laughs> made an impression. <laughs> yes. So, so, that, that's, so you came back from London and then during the 90s it, it, you moved over to Fairfax at some stage? Or, or was it still at news? What, and and you, you were a banking editor, you were an IT editor. you got broad range of areas to cover.
1: Yeah, well, I came back from London and the um, I, I discovered my first pay packet. I was getting paid less than when I left. Right. And then i This is just one of those things. And the editor didn't seem to, uh, uh, you know, didn't think it was an urgent matter to fix this up. So I started to look for another job. And, uh, of course, for the first time in my life, I came... That was opportunistic of them, to give you a
0: paid... Well, uh, that
1: that was a privileged job over there in London. And I'd come back and I thought, you know, maybe I was going to do well at News Limited. But um, I don't think they treated me very well. So um, I was hired in my life twice by Alan Kohler... Right. Uh, the first time was then in 1988 and he was the editor of the Financial Review. I met him down in a sort of dingy cafe in Central and uh, we agreed I would come to... Central the, Station. Yeah. In Sydney. Central Station, Sydney. So he, we agreed I'd come to the Finn Review. Uh, it wasn't a huge pay rise but, you know, I just wanted to, you know, get onto a, a highly respected newspaper like that and, um, of course, I can tell you later a, about the second time he hired me. But um, by the time I got there... There'd been all sorts of ructions. Um, Alan was involved in, in um, negotiating to try and sell the Financial Review to Robert Holmes at Court, mm-hmm. and um, that fell over, and he left the paper. So by the time I got there, the editor was Jerry Noonan, but uh, they still welcomed me with open arms, and my career there started uh, in the company section.
0: Right, as a general business reporter. Yes,
1: that's right. Which, and then I just uh, worked my up, my way up through there.
0: Uh, so that would have been an interesting period because it was when a lot of those entrepreneurs that we were talking about earlier ended up falling over with the recession we had to have, I imagine, and the Australian banks were in a lot of stress. Um, it would have been a different environment in that late 80s into the early 90s.
1: It was, yeah. Um, I mean, one of the staggering things was uh, after the stock market crash of 87, uh, it took a while for the uh, rest of the economy to wake up to what, it, to what really this meant. Which was a complete change in economic conditions, and the property market sort of held on. Uh, it took off for about twelve months. Yes, and it sort of held, and then it then it sort of held on for a while, and people weren't necessarily aware of of what was happening. Uh, and by the time I became the banking editor of the Financial Review in nineteen ninety two, uh, and of course. We would. We had uh, just been through a receivership ourselves at Fairfax, John Fairfax and Sons, mm. was went under because of excessive leverage brought on by Warwick Fairfax trying to take the company over. Uh, With but the help ca- of Laurie Connell. Yeah, but we came out of that under the ownership of Conrad Black, um, who later owned uh, the Daily Telegraph and had his own colourful career. <laughs> but uh, yeah. At that's uh, when the, the biggest story in Australia was was the collapse of the, of the commercial property market and its impact on the banking system.
0: And it was quite devastating. The recession we had to have turned into probably the worst we'd had since Second World War.
1: Yes, well, you probably know the uh, home loan interest rates were 17%. Um, yeah, the Reserve Bank uh, had uh, really just, you know, wanted to... Crack down on inflation, and it was uh, it was a tough time uh, for a lot of people. But of course, the worst of all in terms of institutions was Westpac, Westpac. Uh, because it had three separate arms uh, lending to property uh, companies and not coordinating any of that in one central place. So it all it all sort of blew up on them.
0: Yeah, the deregulation of the banking system uh, caused a little bit of a unusual behaviour (laughs) at that period. It did, yeah. The the
1: bankers went went mad as they all tried to compete with each other and uh, commercial property was the way to go.
0: And the famous story about Packer raiding the Westpac share register and eventually needed the big rights issue to survive, to recapitalise it, that was an interesting part of the... The banking story at the time. Did you, you didn't get a chance to speak to him again when he was when he was very active in that area?
1: No, I didn't talk to him during that period. But it was a, it was a, a certainly a phenomenal period of uh, uh, dynamic, fast moving. Uh, he went into a board meeting, blew up, came out, um, basically uh, had a fight with John Urig and lost, and then uh, dumped all his stock. And um, many years later, uh, you know, there was a wonderful calculation done by Brian Johnson, still a leading analyst, a banking analyst today, about uh, what would have happened if Packer had held on to those shares. And uh, I think if you did the, did the numbers, including all the dividend reinvestments, uh, the uh, amount of wealth that James Packer has now would be uh, twice or three times as much Yep. Uh, just by simply buying... That whole bunch of Westpac shares at That's two dollars fifty, yeah. and holding on to them.
0: It was a great trade, but it would have been a much better investment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. <laughs> Just have to be patient, which wasn't one of Kerry's uh, main main features. I, I'd I'd love to go through the nineties, but it, we'd be we could talk about it for days. So we better move on a little bit um, and move to when further on after you've done all your journalism, and then briefly you went to him. Inv- to public relations, investor relations. Now, That's what, right. what triggered that and why would you do it? Um, a change, a ability you earn more money?
1: Yeah, well, um, I'd been at the Fin Review uh, for quite a long time. We're getting around now to 2007. Yeah. And um, uh, I had a, a very good editor, Glenn Burge, and I think, you know, Glenn... Um,
0: he was my editor. Yes, yeah, <laughs> well, so
1: Glenn, Glenn had this uh, habit of asking me to do things out of left field. So I came back from Japan. I was a global markets editor, and um, he then suddenly uh, says to me, "How'd you like to be the IT editor?" I knew nothing about, uh, you know, IT or technology, but I said, "Yeah, okay, I'll do that." And then I went back to being uh, a financial services editor, and then he suddenly came up to me and he said, "How'd you like to be the telco writer?" We've got the T three, uh, the Telstra's third big tranche, which I think was about fourteen billion dollar uh, float of shares. I said, yeah, I can do that. But when all that was, was done, um, I, I was sort of feeling a bit, um, uh, a bit sort of lost on the paper and uh, um, I had still boys at school and I sort of thought, well, you know, I'm not, not getting paid what I think I'm worth. And uh, this uh, offer came along and I went into public relations for – I only stayed there for a year. It, it wasn't my cup of tea. I enjoyed the, the intellectual challenge of that whole – Um, game, which, uh, I mean, I had a very successful uh, sort of client, did an arbitrage uh, sort of attack on a listed investment company in Perth, and and they did very well out of that. But after a year, I'd I'd sort of had enough, and then, uh, lo and behold, Alan Collar rang me up again.
0: Alan was back in the picture. What did he ask this time?
1: Well, (laughs) at that time, he had the online uh, business news, Business Spectator, and uh, it was doing very well. Um, the three main writers were himself, uh, Robert Gottliebson and Stephen Bartholomew's, mm-hmm. And uh, it was basically an alternative to the Finn Review. And uh, i got to say, at that time, the Finn Review uh, didn't uh, understand the importance of digital media and how the internet was changing uh, people's reading habits. And uh, when he rang me, Alan, uh, and offered me the job, it was just...
0: Uh, a fantastic opportunity, so I grabbed it. The Spectator had two at the time, but about to be three Shonkley columnists working at it. Quite, quite interesting. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, wonderful uh, place to And Stephen learn. had his own column for years as well.
1: He's still in the Herald, Stephen Bartho. Yeah, yeah no, he's he's uh, he's a great journalist. But um, the, I suppose for me it was it was a pivotal turning point because I had to learn how to write commentary and have an opinion on. Uh, Business issues, rather than just carrying covering news. Yeah, rather than trying to give you a balanced report of what had just happened, and yep. uh, to to write an opinion every day about something is not easy. And uh, so I I started to do that with a with lots of material to write about because we were just in the middle of the global financial crisis.
0: Mm, yeah, interesting times. To have an opinion, everyone's got one, but to write it every day, what what's the difference? Is it is it backing it up with facts and data? Is that what you... Learned? Yeah, well, that
1: was my approach, Matt. Yeah. I, I wanted to sort of have evidence-based opinions and not just uh, something that came off the top of your head every every uh, morning uh, or afternoon. I, I felt as though you had to call as many people as possible, find out what was going on behind the scenes to... Uh, You know, form form an opinion. Um, Now, it's it's a tricky business when you're talking to different bankers from both sides Mm. of a deal, for example. Um, Most of us
0: just got to deal with used car salespeople or car salespeople, but the bankers (laughs) 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 they're upmarket versions of that.
1: Well, yeah, they always uh, will will pitch their side of the story and uh, maybe maybe even uh, exaggerate it. Uh, So you've got to try and find a way through the middle of that uh you know with with you think an opinion that'll stand up
0: and any any of those bankers those investment bankers that that um you enjoyed dealing with over the years
1: yeah look there were some uh you know some some very very good people who were reliable and uh uh i think the main thing is that you you, you don't want anyone to lie to you um
0: and but that, everyone does at some stage
1: yeah look um sometimes they 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 sort of uh, stretch the truth um <laughs> Yeah, there's only been a couple of times I've had people, like, straight out lie to me. Um, one was at Westpac uh, when I had the story about Gail Kelly uh, stepping down in favour of Brian Hartzer. And other uh, was a banker there uh, who, uh, who lied straight out. I, 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 call, I tried to make that extra call and um, I won't mention his name, but um, it's, uh, it's very disappointing when people do that.
0: And that stopped you writing it?
1: it did actually I'd done all the homework on that one and uh i was I was ninety nine point nine percent sure but I'd seen this person crossing the bridge at Piermont after lunch uh Rob Whitfield and this person and rob had had been in the running for that job and missed out and I thought I'll make one last call to this person he was with and um he just straight out lied to me called him the next morning and he said oh i um uh, you know, we will always defend Gail Kelly uh, right to the end, and um, it was not in her interests uh, for you to run that story. So that you know, there's there's some weird justifications for for blatant lying, but
0: uh M- maybe you didn't sleep the night before. That, that can be the recompense <laughs> <laughs> after <each> he <other laughs> told you told you a lie. So th- then you were there for a while, and then the next step was to actually go back to Fairfax and Chanticleer.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, the, uh, the business spectator business model was uh, incredibly uh, uh, what, what demanding in the sense that there was no advertising, so they had to generate as much traffic as possible. And um, yeah, when they did the numbers, uh, my traffic wasn't sort of stacking up. Right. And so uh, I had a, had a you know, sort of pleasant conversation with, with Alan and, and he was very good. I was able to uh, basically walk out of there with three months pay and then start the following Monday. Glenn Burge had me back like a flash.
0: Right. There you go. And he had you doing Chanticleer from that day. Well,
1: no, I was financial services editor for about uh, a year and right. uh, Alan Jury, uh, who was the Chanticleer at the time, had decided to, uh, to leave and uh, I, I, it's almost like a Stephen Bradbury moment, Matt. <laughs> Glenn looks around the office <laughs> and uh, I, I'm the only sort of grey-haired guy with a bit of experience and I got the job.
0: Very good. Oh, well. Sometimes the luck is you've got to be at the right place at the right time. You've got to put yourself in the position. Yeah. But a reward for many, many years and having incredible knowledge, broad knowledge. So, Chanticleer itself, it comes with a lot of um, prestige but a lot of responsibility. It, did you feel at the time that when you first started sleepless nights?
1: Oh, look. Stress. Tell, yeah, tell us about that. terribly stressful and nervous. And, uh, I mean, uh, one thing Alan Jury said to me is that, Tony, the, uh, uh, the the hardest part is having the time to do all the reading. You know, if you want to be well informed, you've got to read all those analyst notes. You've got to, you know, uh, read a lot of different material that's uh, coming from around the world, and then you've got to get on the phone and talk to people. and It's just how much time is there in the day to get across? When would you normally start? Oh well, you'd uh, these just before I retired. I was getting to work at uh, I suppose quarter to eight and going home at 7pm. Right. In those days, I was probably getting to work about 9 and going home at 9.30pm.
0: At right. You had so later deadlines.
1: Much later deadlines. I like to push a deadline, uh, Matt, <laughs> and, uh,
0: <laughs> as far as I can.
1: Uh, I just, but
0: it's interesting with technology, the deadlines have come forward, not back.
1: They have come forward. The uh, Fin Review in 2010 had two editions, and uh, there was a lot of effort put into that second edition. But um, these days, it's one edition. But, of course, the digital platform is running all the time. Uh, you know, there's a newsletter in the morning, there's a newsletter at midday, there's a newsletter at five o'clock, there's other specific topic uh, and industry segment newsletters, there's uh, um, there's the newspaper itself and that deadline. So it's it's multiple, uh, uh, I suppose, deadlines that you're managing in the interests of the readers.
0: And, and at the time, you, you, you say after a couple of months or something, do you think oh, I can make a fist to this or, or was it...? overwhelming still.
1: No, I, um, I had, I had great support from people at the office and, um, yeah, I was able to, uh, uh, get sort of get on top of it and, and there was, look, I still, I still sometimes struggled. I remember one night, um, Glenn Burge, uh, said we're putting a house ad on the back page. I was so late. I was so (laughs) consumed with getting this, this thing right that, uh, that he, was his threat, was it, the house Yes, ad. so I, I'm, instead of typing my copy to, to finish the story, I had to rush into his office and said, "What, you know, what's going on? He said, you've been too late for too long. I'm not going to put up with any more. We're putting a house out on the back page. Now, this would have been historic. Uh, never before had Sean to clean did not. You, did you <laughs> ask him to produce it? Not see appeared. Do you want to so, see it
0: before you do it?
1: Uh, I, I sort of just, I thought he was serious, but I just went back to my desk and finished, finished the column. Filed it, and uh, uh, there it was in the paper in the morning. So, it uh, <laughs> it was one of those sort of precarious moments. I thought, I've I've really overdone it now, and and it's all gonna end. This will be the end of my career.
0: Yeah, well, uh, Glenn had that ability. I, I remember I was at the Herald with him when T One came out. He said, "Righto, you can cover Telstra. I want a story every day. The the company's listing in four months. A story every day. That's what he wanted." So. Glenn Glenn's always been demanding. It, it doesn't sound like he changed in, in the following no, years. No,
1: but it's amazing when you try. If someone's told you that, you can find a story. You can. Um, you know, yeah. you call up enough of those bankers and other people around the periphery of, of the, the, the country's biggest telecommunications company. Uh, you'll, a story you'll, somewhere. you'll find something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and what, what talking about stories, what was the best story you covered and, and you thought you nailed in the 13 years? Um. I, I suppose I'm, I'm proud of the,
1: my coverage of the uh, bank cartel case. Mm-hmm. Now, this is where the ACCC had massive overreach of its uh, jurisdiction and suddenly decided that a capital raising done by the ANZ Bank, uh, that uh, the seven bankers involved had, had gone to work that day and committed a criminal of cartel offence, which is uh, uh, subject of many years in jail if convicted. And... Um, I, I got onto that story early and and found huge holes in mm-hmm. in the case that was trying to be prosecuted by the uh, uh, director of public prosecutions, and you know followed it all the way through to the end. I remember writing a column uh, January last year saying, uh, you know, this is this is starting this is farcical what's happening and how long can this continue to drag on? And of course, the the the, the weird thing about that case was that it started with the uh, lawyers for JP Morgan deciding to seek immunity advised by Gilbert and Tobin uh, and of course the top competition lawyer there was Gina cascott Lieb. so in the end uh, she was chairman by that time last year of the ACCC and the other, or one. about to start. Now I mean in a sense that's a wonderful thing that we get the absolute best from the private sector to go into our regulatory agencies, but this one just looked a bit um, too hard, and the DPP just said uh, we're dropping it, mm. and um, it, it was morning f- Four or five years of hell for some of those people. Yeah, uh, uh, they were. Uh, one of them in particular lost his job, and uh, you know was unable to get a job all through that period. And yeah, uh, wrong I, people's lives. Yeah, I just thought. Um, no, I. I and fully supported the ACCC doing its job and uh, but in this case they uh, could have just gone to the to the parties and worked out some some fresh yeah, protocols for that's
0: one of the issues with the regulator's conclusion doesn't seem to come whichever regulator it is as quickly as it should on many occasions
1: yeah just talking to the industry about how to uh, mm. avoid um, uh, uncertainty in gray areas that, that might you know uh, require some clarification mm.
0: and Characters, we've talked about the 80s and 90s characters during a Chanticleer period, different decade, different era in Australian business, Um, and everyone wants to be talked about on Chanticleer in a favourable light because it's, as we said, the preeminent spot in Australia's um, number one financial um, newspaper. Some of the characters, did did you get to speak to Twiggy or Andrew Forrest or... Any of those characters, or Kerry Stokes over the years? Or, yes, yes. Uh, or I even did, a did, Gina Reinhart, those <laughs> kind of characters. Do they ring yeah. you directly and talk to you? No,
1: uh, it's funny. Um, I had an interesting experience with Kerry Stokes uh, when he bought the uh, West Australian newspapers, and I went to the press conference for that one, and I, to be honest, I gave him a, a sort of a Dorothy Dixer. I said, uh, you know, because seven group was doing quite well, I said, "You know, is this a is there is this a, this deal a vindication of your own uh, strategy that you've pursued?" And uh, because I worked for uh, uh, Fairfax, uh, which is now part of Nine, I, I think he took it in a bad way because he'd, he'd been criticised by the Herald, and he just went for me. And it right. was uh, it in was, the public was, forum. Yeah, it's incredible. I sort of uh, he just sort of really cut me to shreds there in front of the whole uh, press conference. But it was funny, um, about, uh, I don't know, half an hour or so after I got back to the office, I get this call, oh, Mr Boyd, um, I, I have Mr, Mr Stokes would like to talk to you, um, are you free at all? And I said, yes, I'm free. So, uh, <laughs> he put him through and, uh, oh, it's Kerry Stokes here, uh, I believe I was, uh, I was a bit, uh, over the top earlier today, uh, you know, I hope you accept my apologies, uh, and, um... I
0: said, yeah, sure, you know. Um, but in, sometimes a fight can make a relationship. Well, yeah. Because you I have, could probably call him after that, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> well, two things. I mean, I, I
1: have uh, had a very good relationship with Ryan Stokes and he said some nice things when I retired. Uh, but it was interesting, before that phone call, I'd been working on a on a piece that was going to uh, say that this was a really bad deal right. and uh, the whole thing would, uh, would, would, would wouldn't work out for them and... Um, after I'd spoken to him, because we then had a chat about the transaction, I, I changed my position, and um, in hindsight, uh, it was a bad deal. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, that was that was interesting. I've had a number of conversations with with Andrew Forrest. Uh, always, uh, you know, th- there's always something there that, that's going to make you think harder about where's the world going, where's Australia going to be in 2030. I think that's great to have people who are forcing the country and, and journalists and, and everyone to, to to think what's happening as this energy transition goes on, as, you know, climate change continues to have devastating impacts around the world. So uh, I found those,
0: you know... Is he, does he remind you of Bondi at all, a kind of convincing, upbeat type of character? Uh, I think I think he's
1: got more credibility than Bondi. Oh, definitely. Um, yeah definitely. Well, I'm not, um, not saying that, but just Yeah, no, the no there's, there's, there's an enthusiasm and a, and a sort of... Uh, uh i I suppose um always uh looking for the for the next big um deal I suppose that that that's the impression that you get that he that he is roaming the world um and and never at rest and and constantly uh, trying to trying to go on to the next yeah, big thing
0: yeah the entrepreneurs if they're successful they're restless aren't they, they just don't yeah seem to ever be satisfied with what they've just achieved or it seems that way anyway
1: but, but it's incre- um, incredible
0: to be able to talk to them
1: yeah, I mean, uh, you mentioned Gina Reinhardt. Soon after I became Shonda Clear, I tried to uh, establish some sort of relationship uh, with with Hancock Prospect again, maybe even get an interview with her, but uh, that that was just impossible. Uh, uh, I, I made I, maybe I made the mistake of trying to go through the switchboard, but uh, <laughs> I was uh, that was one of the rudest sort of responses I've ever had to a request. Uh, and nothing ever happened after that. Never had right. any responses to emails or requests for interviews. Um, the other well, one um, was uh, Lachlan Murdoch. I had a long standing um, uh, request for an interview with him, uh, which uh, never, you know, I'd remind his uh, public relations person in Australia uh, each year, and he'd say, yeah, I'm working on it. You know, but <laughs> nothing ever happened. Nothing happened. But, but I do have to thank Lachlan Murdoch because it was my coverage of uh, of his strategic blunders at um, Ten Network that were able to uh, win me the Citigroup or Citibank uh, Journalism Excellence Award, and um, I got ten days at Columbia University. Uh, with, with a whole bunch of journalists from around the world and, and that was a real privilege.
0: Well, that's nice. and it's uh, You always need people to provide good material for a good story. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> <laughs> Lachlan was doing his part there. Yes. <laughs> um, what I'd like to finish up on uh, is just <laughs> the Sean to Clear column, talk about it a little bit. And wh- what do you see it as its place in, in Australian business reporting and the overall share market and, and the role there? And maybe... To fill it out, how you saw your role, what you brought to the column, because as we said, we had got leads and started off in, in Melbourne in the seventies, and Cola and Ivorys and and uh, John Jury and Alan Jury and all, all these great names. Um, I know you got it to you're part of the move to Sydney because originally, yes, it was, Melbourne it was always it was based in Melbourne.
1: Actually, that's right until yeah. uh, Alan Jury took over uh, from John Jury. But um, but
0: the column itself, what role does it play and, and how important is it?
1: Yeah look I think it's incredibly important um, to the public debate. but in, in terms of um, the financial uh, markets uh, and, and corporate Australia, it's, it's trying to uh, keep a, a sharp eye on uh, the governance of companies and, and whenever those, uh, when, whenever those company directors are, are failing, in their duties, you've got to you've got to try and remind them. Um, of course, uh, rear window under Joe Aston is, is doing that as well. Uh, he's also on the back page with Miriam Robin, um, and they do that well. But um, yeah, the Shonda Clear column has a very important role in uh, holding corporate Australia to account, uh, watching what uh, chief executives and their management teams are doing. Um, mm-hmm keeping uh, the, the, the directors who are responsible for corporate governance uh, to uh, standards that, you know, uh, I think most investors would, would agree uh, are, the, are the minimum for uh, the proper functioning of capital markets. So, um, yeah, I, um, you know, I've, I've, I've tried to, uh, and I think I've successfully prosecuted the case for more women to be in management teams and on boards and uh, it was nice when I was at the Chief Executive Women that Sam Mostyn, former president there, you know, thanked me for, for what I'd done on that front. And I think that's that's a very important role that Shoddy can play in, um, uh, you know, putting forward the, the issues that are going to make business a better place for everyone to work in. So um, yeah, I think it's it's a place where you can uh, uh, expose things that that are not being written about elsewhere and. It you know, has, has a very valuable role.
0: And it's changed a lot, hasn't it? You, you talked about it briefly earlier where the deadlines are a bit later and you wrote a copy now. These days it's earlier. But you've also expanded the repertoire, It's not just writing the column. You, you've done podcasts. You, you do live events. You've kind of rounded out the job of the Chanticleer person. Do you, think, do you think that's a necessary way to go in the modern world? I mean, we're doing a podcast now. There's different avenues to market now.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. It has evolved a lot. When I started in 2010, there was uh, the column and uh, we had a Chanticleer lunch once a year that was sponsored by a big investment bank. And um, nowadays, uh, of course, you have to file in the morning and this is why there's two of us, two people doing it now. I had James Thompson, mm. and before that Michael Smith. So we had a team effort there going to make sure that we could meet all the demands of the online Uh, in in the morning and and during the day. And uh, so some days uh, James Thompson would be writing that first column that appears on the website and goes out in the midday newsletter. Uh, Now, of course, uh, he's joined by Anthony MacDonald, and so the two of them are doing it. Um, But you're right, uh, there's the Chanticleer podcast once a week, which has proved to be a really good way to to also engage with readers. And then there's those conferences... um, it's uh, it's it's pretty demanding. You've got to do your research when before you get up on stage with someone. And um, there's now but you're the moderator in- yeah. Life. When you're a moderator or interviewer, uh, you know there's a, say a moderator of a panel of three or four people. Uh, there's, there's, there can be several hours' work in preparation for that. I mean, this year the Financial Review (Afr Live) will have uh, 18 different uh, summits and conferences. Uh, that's that's a pretty uh, pretty full dance card if you're involved in in all of those. Uh, I wasn't involved in every conference and summit last year, but um, they're really important for generating news and being, mm. you know, at the centre of a lot of very important political and business debates. So they, they serve a very powerful uh,
0: yeah they generate uh, sort of news role in, the, in, the, in themselves. So you must have uh, coming home late at night. I always remember the few years I was a journalist. You'd come home and you were a buzz, and it'd take you hours to come down, and you couldn't get to sleep till late. Was it always like that, or, or did you get into a, it was, a groove and you could sleep
1: well? <laughs> no, you're right, Matt. It was always like that. You just very hard to relax, and uh, you know my, my wife Claire would would have you know held off having dinner till, uh, you know, 7.30, quarter to 8. Or I mean, it was – obviously it got better as the deadlines moved forward. Um, but, uh, yes, you can you can be coming home full of all this uh, intense concentration on a particular topic and, and, and not be able to focus on – just your family, which... Uh,
0: well, you must have done a pretty good job there because you've had at least one of your kids. Tim worked as a journalist.
1: Yes, he worked on Street Talk and then yeah. uh, left there and went to Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet, so he's, he's doing well there. Uh, my other son, Edward, uh, he was he was a, a sort of a copyboy editorial assistant at the Fin Review for a few years, but now he's uh, a Sky Business reporter with Ross yeah. Greenwood on his program. Yeah. So... Uh, He's doing pretty well there, so yeah. Look, I think the um, if you grow up in a journalist family where um, dad's not listening to you because he's reading the paper, <laughs> <laughs> you you are sort of uh, inculcated into this uh, ink in your veins type uh, um, life, and and uh, you know I'm I'm happy that they uh, have chosen their oh, own that's way
0: Absolutely because it's a tough profession, and. Um it's interesting that they've obviously you've you've taken good things home with you rather than the frustration of the day, which 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 can be quite difficult. There might there might be occasions where journalists' kids decide I'm never doing that.
1: <laughs> no, well I have one other son, David, who's a uh, aeronautical engineer and, and working in a in a startup. So uh, yeah, the uh, uh, you know there's there's a bit of diversity there in, in career choices, and I fully support that. In any
0: family. Well, they sound like they're all off to a flyer, so that's, that's terrific. And you've got, um, well, it'll be interesting to see what you do do. You've, you've enjoyed the first week off with a bit of surfing, even though you nearly had an accident. <laughs> but I, I remember when I switched jobs as a journalist to a fund manager, it took me about a year and a half to realise that I didn't need to do something every day. I didn't need to file a copy every day. So it'll be interesting to see how you go in the next little while, the next six months, to see if you can come off that. That high, that buzz, that adrenaline—that every day you did something, you produced something. Which a lot of people say they can't do in a job, but in, in journalism, you've got to do it.
1: Yes. No. Well, look, I'm looking forward to this break, Matt, and uh, I'm
0: backing great. you. By the way, I'm sure you're
1: very <laughs> <laughs> good. No, I've been amazed at the number of uh, sort of offers that have come my way to do other interesting things, and but uh, at this stage, uh, it's probably going to be a good long break, and then uh, maybe, uh, and I'm. Will probably come back as a contributor to the Financial Review um, for 2024 is going to be a huge year for Shawna It'll be the 50th anniversary 50th, um, yeah. since uh, Got and wrote that first column. I think in July 1974. Um, that's I reckon that's worth celebrating.
0: Oh, definitely, and, and God,
1: he's still going. He is, yes, at the Australian every day, uh, up at 4:30 or 5 o'clock, and filing. Uh, filing quickly and got a tremendously loyal audience i saw that at business spectator his his columns would go up and uh uh, the traffic would just soar as as people uh, saw another another piece
0: from Gotti. well we'll look forward to some of the photos with with all the old columnists next year when it turns 50. i just want to say congratulations on a great career well done on being the longest serving chook and we didn't even get to why we called it Sean O'Clear, but anyway, if people can make up their own minds. it's It's been a great discussion and well done and, and thanks for your contribution to the Australian financial community.
1: Thanks, Matt. Yeah, look, thanks for having me on Livewire.